0: Hey, thanks for joining us uh, this morning, and I do hope that this weekend you've got time that has been set aside. Maybe you spent time yesterday, or there'll be time today, maybe tomorrow, that you remember those who have given their lives in service to our country, that we might enjoy these freedoms that we have. Uh, I, I do hope you'll take that time. My name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here at MCC, and for the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at women who have changed their world. Two weeks ago, we looked at a grandma and a mom and how they changed their world. Last week, we looked at, a, uh, at Deborah who led an army into battle to change her world. And uh, I hope that what you're seeing is that what makes these women exceptional is that they said yes to God when he called on them. And as a matter of fact, the young lady that we're going to look at today also said yes to God when he called upon her. Her name is Esther. Her story is in the book that bears her name in the Old Testament. Uh, And the first chapter, listen, we're going to go through the whole story, which means we're going to be flying at a little bit of an altitude looking at Scripture. But uh, I want to start, we're going to start chapter one, and it gives a little bit of the backstory of what happened in Esther's life. So Esther chapter one, beginning in verse one, This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia, uh, the Medes, the princes, the nobles of the provinces were present, and for a full 180 days... He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. So as this story unfolds, we are in the mid to late 400 years before Jesus is born kind of time frame. And Xerxes is the most powerful man in the world. His empire is known as the largest empire in the history of the world up to this time. 127 provinces uh, was what he ruled, and out of these, a delegate came to this party, and it is likely that there were 1,000 to 2,000 people who came. This banquet would have cost millions of dollars. It was the banquet to end all banquets. Parades were held to show off everything from the slaves that the king had made of conquered peoples to the riches that he had amassed. Archaeologists have uh, unearthed inscriptions in which this king refers to himself as the great king, the king of kings, the king of the lands occupied by many races, the king of this great earth. And we know that historically Xerxes was preparing to launch a military campaign to capture Greece and to make himself the supreme ruler of the world. His plan was to reduce the entire earth to one kingdom. Verse 5, "'When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all of the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars.'" There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, and mother of pearl, and other costly stones. What I want you to catch is this is basically a sophisticated kegger. And after 180 days, six months of partying with his nobles and officials, Xerxes opens the door of the palace and Everyone comes in, and they came by the thousands, maybe the tens of thousands for seven days. And Xerxes shows them everything he owned that would impress them. Well, everything but one thing. Verse 9, while the men are getting their drunk on, look at what the women are doing. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. See, the men would have brought their wives, but it was a breach of social etiquette for men and women to attend the same feast. So Queen Vashti has a banquet for the wives and the sisters and the mothers in another part of the palace. Verse 10, On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, and look at their names, we're not even drunk and we would have slaughtered their names. Imagine what he would have done to them. Verse 11, he has them bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Listen, the whole point of this party was to show off his wealth and power. So after drinking for 187 days, King Xerxes realizes he hasn't shown everything that he has for his people to admire. He has one unrivaled prize yet to unveil. But verse 11, those words, wearing her royal crown, scholars have wrestled with that. Some scholars suggest that that means that was all Vashti was to wear into the room. Verse 12, but when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And then the king burned with anger, uh, was furious, burned with anger. Surprisingly, Queen Vashti did not want to appear before a palace full of drunken men. And I don't know if you can imagine in verse 12 just how furious Xerxes was. How much had he built this up? And he was furious and burned with anger. Listen, have you ever seen the movie 300? Of course not. We're all Christians here, right? Uh, but this is the king from that movie. Look at this guy. That's who Vashti said no to. And so in verse 13, he consults with his advisors and they say, Wow, you, you cannot let her get away with this. Or every wife in the kingdom will stop respecting her husband. Look at verse 18. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Sometimes I like the way the message version says things. They'll be out of control. Is that what we want? A country of angry women who don't know their place? (laughs) You can't let that happen. So he strips Queen Vashti of her position and banishes her from his kingdom. Later, Xerxes Sobers up and realizes that the decisions that you make when you're intoxicated may not be the best decisions you make in your lifetime. Which brings us right into chapter 2. That's all backstory. In chapter 2 verse 1, later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and all that she had done and what he had decreed about her. And then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. His drunken disregard for his wife had created a relational crisis for him. So some producers from a local network gave him the idea of hosting a new show called The Bachelor. Each of his 127 provinces would send a representative and the most beautiful girl would win and the rest would go into the harem, which... Sounds like an idea that a bunch of men would come up with, right? There's a young girl named Esther, the heroine of our story. In verse 7, tells us that Esther was raised by her older cousin, Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter when her mom and dad died. Beyond that, there is only one other thing that we know about her, and and that is that she had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Literally, the Hebrew says she was smoking hot. Uh, And she catches the attention of the bachelor. And before she goes in to be with the king, she undergoes 12 months of beauty treatments. And finally, she goes in to meet Xerxes, and he is smitten. He gives her the rose, and they're married, and she becomes the queen of Persia, which is the Christian version of her story. Interestingly, no one is aware that she's Jewish. She never mentions that. And then two events are recorded right at the end of chapter 2 that are seemingly... Uh, insignificant and unconnected, but they provide—they prove pivotal in just a little bit. The first is that Esther's uncle Mordecai uncovers a plot to assassinate the king, and he foils it. And he's never rewarded, but that story is written down in the history of King Xerxes. The second thing that happens is that around this time, Xerxes appoints a new prime minister. It's a guy by the name of Haman, and we find out that Haman hates. Jewish people. But on the flip side, he does love himself. And so he makes this rule that whenever he walks around, everyone else has to bow down to him. And everyone does, except Mordecai. And that infuriates Haman. Verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6, yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So he goes to the king and somehow convinces him that he needs to exterminate this whole group of people who are not like them. And he sets an extermination date for the Jews in Persia. It's Adar 13th or somewhere around February, March on our calendar. I don't know if you can imagine how the, how the Jews felt. Doomsday had been put on their calendar In an irreversible decree, and they were all going to be killed. I'm assuming they were beginning to wonder where God is in all of this. Verse 13 dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. So Uncle Mordecai hears what's going on and he sends Esther a message telling her what was happening. And he tells her that she has to go before the king. And beg him for mercy. And Esther sends a message back to her uncle, essentially saying, I hear what you're saying, but before I go into the presence of the king, I have to be summoned. If I'm not summoned by the king, I could be killed. And the king hasn't sent for me in over 30 days. And maybe in parentheses, you can hear her saying, And do you remember what happened to the woman who held this position before me? Verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Don't think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family, your father's family, they'll all perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther, the fate of God's people is in your hands. You didn't ask for it, but here it is. You've not been brought into this palace so that you could accumulate an exquisite wardrobe, precious gems, exotic fragrances, merely to be the most beautiful woman in the kingdom. God has brought you to this point in your life so you can be part of what he is doing to work for justice and to oppose this evil and vile and frighteningly powerful man. This is an evil time and somebody has to do something about it. And Esther, that somebody is you. Let's not, we're going to stop for just a moment because I want to make sure you catch this. And if you're on the Bible the YouVersion Bible app, these are in the notes, but catch this, if I'm going to change my world like Esther, I'm going to need a Mordecai in my life. Mordecai is the one who calls her out. We need someone who has permission to call us out. We need people in our lives who will challenge us to do what God wants us to do. We need people in our lives who really know us, and they genuinely care about us, enough to speak into our lives. And your Mordecai, listen, if there's a Mordecai in your life, it's anyone who calls you up and calls you out like that. So listen, if you're on Facebook watching this right now, would you comment, share who that is in your life? If while I was talking about that, talking about Mordecai, there was a name or a face that popped into your mind, someone you've given permission to, to call you up, call you out. Would you just share their name so that others can see that? And let me ask you this as well. Who do you suppose that's watching right now or who will watch this later considers you their Mordecai? Your name will pop up in their feed. Listen, if you had a moment like this, a moment where you have to decide if you're going to step across that line and do what God says he wants you to do, because actually, I'm pretty sure that you have. I'm also confident that you'll have many more as you walk through your life. But here's the point. I want to make sure you get this. To change my world like Esther, I have to take advantage when I'm in a such a time as this moment in my life. Paul would address this all the way at the other end of the Bible in the book of Ephesians. He says that God made us what we are. He says, in Christ Jesus God made us to do good works, which God planned in advance for us to live our lives doing. Listen, has it ever occurred to you that you are right where God wants you to be and because he has something for you to do right where you are? And it may be hard. Listen, it may be unpopular. It may be uncomfortable. It may cost you something. And God is inviting you to do it. Listen, I don't know what your such a time as this moment is, but I believe we all have them, and I believe that they all require courage and faith, and I would hope that we all would respond as Esther does. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 15, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all of the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, uh, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Listen, if I'm going to change my world like Esther, I have to acknowledge and recognize what Esther realized, that prayer is the path that moves my heart from fear to faith because this was one of those swallow moments where she just took a big gulp and said, and if I die, I die. And so all the Jews, she and all the Jews pray. Can I just say, if you are facing a such a time as this moment in your life, the first and most important thing that you can do is to pray. And I mean, I mean, really pray I mean, get down on your knees before God and ask him what he wants you to do and to give you the courage to do it. I wonder for how many of us, we live our lives uh, out where it's comfortable, not out on the edge, where if God doesn't come through, it's just not going to happen because that's the moment she's in. Chapter five, verse one, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace. And when the king saw Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter. And then the king asked, what is your request, Queen Esther? If it pleases the king, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet that I have prepared for him. So she gets ready for the banquet, and she's getting ready to ask mercy for her people. And so the banquet comes and Xerxes looks at her, right in the eyes and says, what do you want, my queen? And I wonder if she doesn't hesitate for just a moment before she says, how about another banquet tomorrow? I think she asks for another banquet because she's listening to God. Check this out. It's in the notes. If we're going to step out on the edge, that means we have to listen to God and follow his timing because sometimes God wants us to charge ahead boldly and other times he wants us to slow down and give him a moment because he has something he's going to do to prepare the way. And that's exactly what he does in this uh, account. Do you remember the first two seemingly insignificant details I mentioned earlier? Well, that night King Xerxes can't sleep and so he has the record of his reign uh, brought in and read to him. And while it's being read, he's reminded that Mordecai saved his life, and it's recorded that he was never rewarded. So the first thing, the next morning, he has Mordecai honored. And you have to read that story for yourself. I hope you will. God has this great sense of humor that is on display there. But that night again at the banquet with Haman and Esther and the king, the king asks Esther again, what can I do for you? And Esther says, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. And then Esther tells the king that there is someone in his kingdom who has planned to destroy, kill, and annihilate her entire nation of people. And if, in in my mind, I'm picturing Haman eating an hors d'oeuvre at that moment and beginning to choke on bacon-covered something or another, right? And Xerxes says, who is he? Where is he? the man who has dared to do such a thing, read in parentheses, to my wife. And she says, it's this wicked Haman. Long story short, Haman ends up being hanged on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. The king needs a new chief of staff. Xerxes asks Esther, who do you think my new chief of staff should be? Esther has a great idea. How about Mordecai? So Mordecai receives Haman's old position and all of his wealth, and it sounds like the story has a happy ending. But we've forgotten there's a ticking bomb still sitting in the corner. The king says to Esther, because there's this edict, right, meaning death to the Jews still in play, the king says, now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no documentation written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. And so Mordecai writes it, and the Jewish nation was saved. That's the story of Esther, told very quickly at a high level. And I wanted to share that with you today because some of you needed this story. Not so much because it's the story of how Esther changed her world, but because you need to know through this story that God has plans for your life as well. You see, the question is not, is God in in control of this world? The question really is, is God in control of, of my world? Is he in control of my life? Are we cooperating with him so that we're actually part of the answer as opposed to being part of the problem? And the thing is, I can't change my world the way Esther did until God has changed my world And I've already shared this before in the email I send out on the weekends, but I'm really excited that there are two people who are coming over this afternoon who want to make their commitment to Jesus through their baptism. And maybe you're thinking about that as well because you've begun to wonder about, is God really, has He changed my life? Have I given my life to Him and allowed Him to come in and change my life? And if that's your next step, We'd love to help you with that. And each week we stop and we remember. This is how important this is to us, that we remember that we've given our lives to Jesus, that he has changed our lives, continues to change our lives, and will change our lives until the day we go to be home with him. But each week, because of how important that is, we stop to remember through our time of communion, our commitment of our life to Jesus. And we remember the price that he paid for our sins on the cross when his body was broken and his blood was shed. And it is in this very act of communion that we remember our promise to follow him and to allow him to spend the rest of our lives helping us become like him so that others see him through us and are drawn to him as well. So as we get ready for communion this morning, let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you so much for who you are. And more than that, who you call us up to be, you give us these moments where we see the need. We are reminded, for some of us, we are reminded of our need even right now because we've We've been coming to church and singing the songs and listening to the stories. But we've never made that commitment on our own. And so we've been around people who have made the commitment, and that's great. We've put ourselves in proximity of people who are following you, and so we see what that looks like, but we've never made that decision for ourselves. And God, for some of us today, this time right now, as we remember Jesus, the price you paid on the cross for our sins, this this is a moment for some of us to make that decision. For others of us who have made that decision, we draw now to remember. Because we know that you cannot work through us to change the world unless we allow you to work inside of us to continue to change ours. So Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for us Thank you for the work that was begun there and at the empty tomb that continues to this day. And through this act of communion, we recommit ourselves to you and ask you to continue to work inside of us and continue to change us each day to look more and more like you so that others will see you when they look at us. And we pray this, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.